Hi, my name is Jenny Kwong. And I'm Nathan Taylor. Welcome to ArtsLink on CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary on Tree 7 Lands. So, Jenny, what do you have for us this month? I have an interview with two actors in the play The Invisible at Vertigo Theatre. It's a musical noir thriller set in World War II. And I hope you'll join me now as uh, I take a look at the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory. It's one of the satellite campuses of the University of Calgary. And I'll be speaking with Jennifer House, the educational specialist at the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory. So for those that aren't aware of the Rothney, can you tell us about the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory? How long has it been around? What it does? There the Rothney has been uh, in operation for almost 50 years. We're, uh, pretty soon we're coming up to our 50th anniversary. It was a site that was originally scoped out, excuse the pun, by Dr. Alan Clark, and that was way back in the late 60s. And there was actually an observatory on site back in the 1960s, and it was a Government of Canada telescope that was on site. Dr. Clark went to go check it out, and he realized that the site had such a beautiful south-southwest exposure that uh, he made an inquiry to the landowner, who happened to be Sandy Cross, who is the grandson of A.E. Cross, one of the founders of the Calgary Stampede. And Sandy thought it would be a terrific idea to turn the site into an observatory, and so he donated a quarter section of land. And up until the W.R. Ranches donation that just happened this past year, that was one of the largest donations to the University of Calgary. Cool. Now, I'm curious, I've driven past it a million times, but never turned to go in. Uh, what uh, What is on site there, and what generally are people working on? We have uh, five research telescopes. Four of them are optical. One of them is radio. And uh, we are a teaching observatory. Students, uh, the astrophysics students get a chance to come out and take observing classes and uh, do some research and get some really good hands-on practical experience before they go off to big scopes like uh, they might experience with in Chile or perhaps Arizona. Wow, so it, it's uh, not only a world-class uh, research facility, but also a training facility for people. That's correct, yes. Oh, you know, now, um, I've read about your uh, your open house uh, nights, and um, I'd like to you know, sort of just get you on the air to give people an idea of what they can go out to, to go and see as members of the public over there. So we have a really great summer coming up. We've got three major events. Uh, the first is we are going to be commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission. So the lunar landing that happened way back in 1969, 50 years, it's so hard to imagine that it's been that long. Um, and uh, all of the subsequent Apollo missions since then, and hopefully we'll be able to uh, look forward to some very exciting um, lunar exploration in the future. So our event uh, is we're going to be counting down to when the Eagle landed, which happens 1.17 p.m. Calgary time on Saturday, July the 20th. We are going to actually be looking at the sun with uh, telescopes. We will be doing some solar observing, so everybody cross your fingers for some nice sunny skies on that weekend. We've also got a lot of family activities that day, uh, videos. We're going to be talking about our, having presentations, speakers talking about the lunar mission itself, some of the pop culture, some of the excitement that happened around uh, the space race at that time. It was really quite a thrilling time uh, for people and the, the prospect that that uh, humankind was able to do this incredible, incredible thing to land this tiny little uh, spacecraft on the moon. Right, and uh, I keep hearing this statement, uh, you know, uh, most uh, 
most calculators have more uh, horsepower than, than what they use to go to the moon with. Absolutely. At, uh, and if I have a lot of students, um, school-age children come to the observatory, and I always tell them, okay, be prepared, here comes my nerd moment. But I really strongly encourage people to go out and check out some of the uh, documentaries on um, the lunar landing mission, and you'd be amazed at, yes, the technology, but what they were able to accomplish with that technology. Well, we're speaking with Jennifer Howes, who is an educational specialist at the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory. And uh, I'd just like to ask uh, about some other stuff that you folks do over there. I know that there is a, uh, a big amount of work that's being done on studying the Aurora Borealis and uh, also uh, dark skies. Light pollution is absolutely an issue for the Rothney Observatory. Four of our research telescopes are optical. And what that means is these telescopes seem to see the same light that the human eye sees. So if you look up in the sky and there's cloud cover or there's humidity or too much light in the sky, then the telescopes can observe those distant points of light, those celestial objects that we're truly interested in observing. So we have been working very hard and very closely with the Cross Conservation Area and the Foothills Municipality on doing what we can to try and mitigate the amount of light pollution in our immediate area, but also encouraging city designers to think twice about overlighting certain areas, overlighting roads. For example, the Stony Trail Road, very important uh, that they use lighting that is uh, sustainable, of course, but also there's no reason to overlight the area. We drive on highways all the time that have no lights with no accidents. So there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to use some uh, less intrusive lighting on a city freeway. So I'm curious that uh, you used, you know, Stony as an example. Um, it's, it's quite bright. It is. And in the northwest portion of Stony, they have some very good lighting. I don't know if you've had a chance to drive along Stony yourself, but the northwest is not bad. But the eastern leg of Stony has some terrible circa, circa 1950 lighting uh, that it's very hard to drive through. The, their uh, situation is created, it's called pooled lighting. So when you go through, it's either too bright or too dim. And it's very hard for the human eye to adjust that quickly to that type of lighting. And so I think they would have done better if they hadn't put any lights on there at all. And we would have been able to continue to drive on it in the same way as we do on all of the major highways um, in rural Alberta. So um, to take, uh, you sort of to kind of dig into this uh, question of light pollution a little bit. Now, um, when you're talking about stuff that you can do to mitigate uh, what you observe out on the observatory, for us here that are Calgary-bound, you gave a good example of um, how you can tell the difference uh, between, say, how much light pollution there is in the Big Dipper when you're outside of Calgary and when, when you're inside. Can you sort of go over that just so we can, city slickers can get an idea? One of the ways that you can measure the amount of light pollution in your community is to go out of town, go into a nice dark area, look to the north and have a look at the Big Dipper and count the stars that you can see. So you will expect that you're going to see the stars in the cup and in the handle. And there's one particular star in the handle called Mizar. And as a matter of fact, that was actually used as an eye test by the Roman army. So if they could see that particular star, then they would uh, fortunately or unfortunately be um, recruited into the army. Uh, you can take that count in the dark sky, then go into your community at night, have a look in the northern sky, and 
count how many stars you can actually see in your community, and you'll be able to see it. It gets very obvious how much light pollution is in your immediate area. It affects uh, human beings, of course. We need to have dark skies to be able to sleep. It affects insects, plants, animals. Uh, it has a big effect on uh, the whole ecosystem. And so, and there's many times where we're overlighting. We think it's a, an issue of security when really that there's many, many studies that have proven that it's actually not uh, security and that often all you're doing is pointing the way for the bad guys of where the stuff is uh -huh. as opposed to, say, for example, if you used um, a red light or perhaps if you use motion lighting, that is a much more secure way to uh, light an area. Right. Uh, now, uh, one last note on this topic of, of light pollution is that... Um, Say you have you're a, a person of great means and wealth, you can ruin everything for everyone. One of the interesting things that uh, we always wonder about. So we've had many beautiful homes that are out around the observatory, and people buy this lovely home. They move out for the rural lifestyle, and then they put up a post and put a big light on top of it. And we can't quite figure out why they do that, <laughs> because I would have thought the reason why you moved out to that particular part of the world. It's such a beautiful place that you would like to enjoy the dark skies and the stars overhead. And can you also mention uh, what Elon Musk is up to? There has been a, this just happened, I believe it was two or three days ago, there was a satellite deployment of 60 bright, bright satellites. And uh, it's, it's creating problems for optical astronomers, but there's also interference being created for radio astronomers. And uh, it's light pollution, it's uh, creating all of these interference for observations, and we're we're curious uh, why um, some of these issues weren't considered before the launch actually occurred. So uh, maybe don't have to make this a big part of the interview, but uh, you know, here in the law library at the University of Calgary, there is a huge multi-volume tome called "The Law of the Sea." Is there a law of space? That's a great question. There, if there isn't, there should be, especially now that we have private industry is getting involved in uh, space exploration in greater and greater numbers. That That's something that we need to get together as a global community and create, like you said, law of the sea. There should be a law of space. Absolutely. We're speaking with Jennifer House, who's an educational specialist at the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory. Now, uh, what is it like in your line of work educating people? You must see a lot of bright faces, young and old, that uh, come in to uh, you know see the sky. And uh, what kind of reactions do you, do you see? What makes it um, you know what makes it an interesting place to be? We offer school programs for grade six sky science, grade eight light and optics, and grade nine space exploration, and. Kids love the idea that uh, not only that there's so many fascinating things that we're learning about the universe, I think um, the study of astrophysics is going through a renaissance at the moment. There's so many amazing discoveries. We're learning so much. Exoplanets, for example, the idea that there's our eight planets that we know about in our solar system, but this is a brand new idea that there's actually, we've observed planets orbiting distant stars. And that's something when I was a kid that was absolute science fiction, but today it's something that we know and we're actually on the lookout for Earth-like planets orbiting distant stars. That's amazing. And kids love learning about that and all of the possibilities. One of the things that I do like to talk about is the future. What are people going to be doing 500 years from now, 10,000 years from now, as far as space exploration? And I like kids to think big. Sometimes um, kids have to take on a lot of um, 
responsibility, unfortunately, when people start talking about climate change and issues of uh, energy production. And I think they feel quite weighed down on this. So I like to give them an idea to think, look up, think bigger, think about maybe there's possibilities of uh, sources of energy uh, in our solar system. Always, always think happy thoughts is what I tell them. Well, Jennifer, thank you very much for coming out today. Oh, you're welcome. And then thanks for inviting me. That was my conversation with Jennifer Howes, who is the Educational Specialist at the Rothney Astrophysical Observatory. Now, there are a bunch of special events that are happening uh, in July. We wanted to get it well ahead of this one because I'm told that the tickets, as reasonably priced as they are for 10 bucks, is going to sell out. Uh, the events are the aforementioned 50th anniversary of the lunar landing, July 20th from noon to 3 p.m. And as she said, there'll be special guests and opportunities to look through the telescopes directly at the sun. And also uh, in July, you have the Milky Way nights starting up. I urge you to check out the Rothney website, which is science.ucalgary.ca forward slash Rothney dash observatory. All the information is there and they went through a lot of effort uh, to make it as user friendly uh, experience as you can. So please do check that out. And the Milky Way nights, which start on uh, July 25th. And for our musical interlude this month, it gives me great pleasure to bring to you a track that I found this last weekend. It is a uh, rap about the proper pronunciation of Italian foods. It's by Brandon DiCamillo from his album of freestyles called Pizza Pasta Patel. I hope you enjoy it. This is called Fettuccine. If you ever get hungry and you want Italian food, you should know how to pronounce it or you come off sounding rude. If you don't really care to learn, I'm not going to shout it, but you're going to sound stupid, so just forget about it. If you take a few minutes and you learn what to say, the best food on earth will be headed your way. Taste it. Enjoy every bite. You'll be wanting Italian food every night of your life. Are you ready? We're about to begin. Olive oil in my blood, pizza pie on my chin. You might get fat, but what's the point of being thin? All right, everyone ready? I'm going to ring the stuffed shell bell. Get your pencils out. Here we go. Cavatappi's Cavatap, Campanelli's Campanelle. Ravioli's just the same, leave the I, take the L. If it ends in a vowel, don't forget to cut it off. But it's not always the case, don't forget to stir your sauce. See, spaghetti stays spaghetti, but Z turns to Z. Now we're just getting started, tell your friends to grab a seat. Cannolis are cannoli, cappuccino's cappuccino. Fettuccine's pretty good, but even better's fettuccine. If you ever get invited to a real Italian party and you see a bowl of squid, don't you call it calamari. To your Metagon ears, it might sound a bit bizarre, but the real name of this dish is pronounced calamari. If you can't hear the vowel, don't be afraid to put it on. Like mascarpone's mascarpone when they say it in Milan. And at Christmas time, don't you ever say pizzelle. Drop the Z at the T, cause it's really called Patel. Mozzarella's pretty good, but I prefer mozzarella. Add some veal to that meal and a better tagliatelle. Cantaloni's cantaloni, manicotti's manicotti. Rigatoni's rigatone, like ricotta is ricotta. But do I call it sauce or gravy? Wanna be certain, better ask an old Italian lady. Asabuco's asabuc, but don't go getting cute. If you got a question, shoot. Brigitte is brigitte. Trinetti is trinette. Tonarelli's tonarelle. Torellini's torelline. Vermicelli's vermicelle. Panzerati, panzerati. Strangotti's strangotti. Carbonara, carbonara. Guanciale on the spot. Now all the information that you just learned is in your head. Try to use a little language of the lesson that I said. Um, uh, okay, here we go. Uh, mortadella for a fella, mortadella for a friend. Like a tail in my belly and I'll eat it to the end. Rigatoni, rigatoni, making bologna, Manitoba's Manitoba. Did you say Manitoba? Uh, yeah. Uh, Manitoba's in Canada. Uh, you want to try again there? Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, uh, okay. Panacotta's panacotta, impostata's impostata, pepperoni, pepperoni on a pizza nice and hot. That's a boy, you got it now. Class dismissed.
That was Brendan DiCamillo with Fettuccine from his album Pizza, Pasta, Patel. And now let's turn it back over to Jenny. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong for CGSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Today I'm with Justine Westby and Caitlin Sample from the production The Invisible Age of Ungentlemanly Warfare. It's a musical that will be premiering in Calgary um, starting in May and going into June. Uh, welcome. Thank you very much. Okay. And I guess I'll start, uh, start by introducing yourselves and uh, what roles do you have in the musical? Yeah. Uh, my name is Caitlin Semple. I'm from Regina, um, and I am so excited to be doing this new Catalyst musical. Um, my character is Maddie Barré. She's from Paris, um, and it's World War II, and um, our... Um, person that's leading us has decided that they are going to create an all-female cell. So it's really exciting because there's only seven women in the show and there's no men. So we are all strong, powerful women. We are spies and we are taking on the Nazis. Um, so it's a very exciting, very intense musical and it's not your average world war ii musical um it's not very sentimental it's very powerful and it gives lots of strength to women's voices at this time um yeah and justine so uh, i guess uh, talk a bit about yourself and your role in the musical sure okay so um my name is justine westby I am from Calgary, so I'm actually the only Calgarian in the show. Um, I play, my character's name is Charlotte Yashinsky. She is um, a Polish woman who traveled to the UK um, to take part in this cell that Caitlin was mentioning, so to become a spy and work for the British government in order to help take down the Nazis. So she is a very strong woman. Uh, she loves fighting. She loves um leading the charge and being powerful. She um, actually was one of the only ones that before this cell was formed, she actually had already been fighting in the war and already been leading missions and, and things like that. So she, the character is very excited to be part of this group and to be part of this all-female cell and to, to help these women take down whatever Germans they can. And so I guess talk about how long you've been involved with the process of putting the uh, musical together. Um, we actually, I think all of us auditioned for the show last year around this time, uh, last May or June, I think. And Catalyst, we started rehearsals at the end of March. So we did, I think, just about four weeks in Edmonton and two and a half weeks here in Fort McMurray. Um, and then we are in Calgary for about a month at Vertigo Theatre. I guess talk about what is, um... Fascinating about this time period of World War Two and how uh, women were able to um, be part of the fight. Yeah, well, um, the stories of spies in and sort of underground cells, guerrilla warfare in World War Two. Most of those stories are new to me. I didn't, I didn't know a lot about about those those people, those agents. Um, and so doing research on the show and, and finding out how many people were involved sort of in the underground fight and guerrilla warfare was super fascinating to me. And especially reading about 
the women who were involved because, as we say in the show, most of the men who were involved in the war were on front lines. So women were sort of um, unsuspecting. So a lot of soldiers or the enemy, the Nazis, I should say, were not expecting that women would be on the front lines fighting, doing that sort of underground exciting work, which is super fascinating and super empowering, I think, to everybody in the cast to find out that there were so many women involved in that fight and so many of them you never hear about. You, you don't know their stories. You don't know who they are. So to do that research and get to sort of shed a little bit of light on, on their stories and their journeys was, was really exciting, I think, for all of us. And um, Caitlin? Hello. And uh, what are your thoughts about, um, um, I guess, uh, revisiting history through the musical genre? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, something that's really cool that our, our playwright and director and um, music director and everything, Jonathan Christensen created this show, um, and he has done a really beautiful do- job at contemporizing this historical Uh, fiction. It's based on facts, but he's fictionalized it, and he's kind of created a graphic novel version of World War II spies. So I would say it's a really awesome way for young girls to learn about this time period and to be empowered by what women were up to in World War II. Because, yeah, as Justine was saying, all of the men were away fighting, so they actually needed female spies because there weren't that many men on the streets. Um, So it would be too obvious for a spy to be a man walking on the streets of Paris. So these women were really crucial and were the only ones, really, who could step up um, and fight this battle and help the resistance in France. Um, And, yeah share intel. Um, It's really exciting. My character is a singer, um, and I was doing some research and found there was a woman named Josephine Baker who, in World War II, would put on these huge parties um, pretending that she was on the German side and would gather intel from them and write messages in invisible ink on her sheet music. So Jonathan has read all of these stories, and he's created his own versions of these actual women who were around then, but created fictionalized versions of them. And I think they really will resonate with audiences today. And so the story of women spies is beginning to be told in novels such as Kate Quinn's The Alice Network. So why do you think is, is why there, do you think there is this fascination with this aspect of World War II that may not have been uh, before? Yeah, it is, it is in the zeitgeist, as they say right now. There's lots of new movies coming out. There's lots of awesome books, great literature. Um, and I think it's because it's a part of history that we've never really heard of. Uh, we always hear the men's stories. We always hear it from the men's point of view. But hearing it from women's point of view is new to me. I hadn't really heard that before. Um, so, yeah, I think it's finally that women are being historians and women are bringing these stories back, and we're all getting very inspired by it. Okay, and I guess uh, talk about uh, working with uh, the other cast members in the play and how, um, um, uh, what, what's it like to tour this uh, musical? Yeah. yeah. The show is really special. There are seven women in our cast, 
and everyone is so different in terms of personality and in terms of background as well. Um, we're musical theater creatures, so we all sing and dance and act, but the way that you... Uh, your path towards singing and acting and dancing is always very different. So we all support each other in such beautiful ways, bringing our own um, knowledge and background. And yet we all become such a unit and we all have this, <laughs> such a theater cliche to say, but the ensemble brain, <laughs> we can, we just listen to each other. We trust each other um, because everyone is so brilliant. There's so much talent on stage. It's ridiculous. I think it'll be fun for audiences to come and watch and just be blown away by all of the individuals on stage because it's not that there's just one main character. There's seven main characters, and you can dig into each one of them. And, yeah, I would love to hear who people pick as their favorite um, because there's so much great work happening on stage. Um, and I would say, too, our, our leader, um, Melissa McPherson, um, is kind of a, playing our narrator um, because she's the head of the cell. She's our leader of these women, and she is incredible. She's doing such gorgeous work, um, just beautiful, honest, visceral storytelling. And then all of the other women as well. Like I would, I'm going to brag about Justine, who we're here with today. Um, she's so powerful, so strong, um, and just that like powerful female energy is so there with Justine and her voice is incredible and the acting, oh man, it's all so great. So it's hard to pick someone and talk about them because I think each person in the show is incredible. And just to let you know, this broadcast will be happening on June 3rd, which is the Monday. And on June 6th is the anniversary of V-Day, uh, the uh, start of the Battle of uh, Normandy. And so yeah. what do you think about this con coinciding with a historical event? That's really powerful. Yeah. And yeah, it is, we do need to always retell these stories to make sure that history doesn't get there again. Uh, we've been talking about that a lot lately of what would you do if you were there at that time and we're kind of almost there again so what will we do now i think it's a good reminder that we all need to step up we can't just stand by and watch as things happen okay and i guess uh, uh what do you look forward to once you get to calgary for the play I can't wait to get to Calgary. I'm from Regina, and um, Calgary is somewhere we go to shop or go see musicals, and to be a part of Vertigo season has been a dream for me for a long time, and I'm very excited to share this show with Calgary audiences. Uh, any last thoughts for you, Justine? As a Calgarian, like I said, I'm the only Calgarian in the show. I, I'm so thrilled to be able to bring the show home. It's home for me, so I'm so excited. Um, to bring it home to Calgary audiences. I think that, I think it's really going to resonate um, with a lot of, of individuals in Calgary, not just women, men too, young people, old people, people of all, all generations. Um, I really think that this is a story that's, that's going to speak to the Calgary audience. And so I am so excited to bring it home and um, to get to share it with everyone. Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Caitlin and Justine, for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. We're so happy to chat with you. All right, thanks.
That was my interview with Justine Westby, Calgary-based actor, and Caitlin Sample, based in Saskatchewan. They are in the musical thriller The Invisible Agents of Ungentlemanly Warfare. Westby and Sample are spies fighting against Nazis in World War II. The musical is being put on by Vertical Theatre in Calgary and is produced by Catalyst Theatre in Edmonton. The show will be performed in Calgary until June 9th. Tickets, are, tickets to some of the shows are going fast, so visit verticaltheater.com to get yours. Well, that's all the time we have for ArtsLink this month. Talk to you next month.